0: Okay guys, knock it off, knock it off, you act like you like each other or something. That's good, it's a good thing, so um, we will hurry up and get into this message, I got maybe an hour, hour and a half, uh, whittled it down, I'm just kidding, I'm giving you a hard time. It is such a blessing to be here, not only to lead worship for you all, but also to get to bring the word this morning. Thank you to Pastor Tom for entrusting me with this pulpit, I know that's not something to take lightly, uh, so I do count it as a privilege and an honor to be with you guys uh, I've been married to my beautiful wife, Angela, for about nine years now. We have three kids, uh, six, three, and our latest addition is six months. Um, so if you see the bags under our eyes, we're still not, he's still not quite sleeping through the night, but he is certainly worth the sacrifice uh, that my wife endures mainly. <laughs> She's a servant. At least last night, she was up with him quite a bit. Um, but uh, shortly after we got married nine years ago, uh, her parents uh, moved out to Nixa and so we've enjoyed just kind of coming out here somewhat annually for for vacation time, family time. And we just we so enjoy the area. We enjoy the, the green grass, those giant green things you guys call trees are uh, amazing. And I don't know if you realize this, but your parks are awesome. Um, the city parks are like Disneyland compared to some of the parks in Tucson. In fact, when we come here, we'll sometimes try and convince, no, guys, this is Disneyland. Uh <laughs> just to try to save some money in the future. I don't know. I think we went to Disneyland all the time as kids. Um, but uh, we are blessed to be here, not only just to be in the area, but also to come to Calvary Springfield and just to be received like family uh, to, uh, to you guys. So thank you for having us. It is kind of our home away from home when we're on vacation. Uh, so such a blessing. Speaking of parks, I was going to tell you guys um, there was a mystic, an atheist and a Calvary Chapel pastor all hanging out at this park one time. And, uh, just kind of sitting on this bench, they were observing this, this interesting creature at the park. And the mystic, he, he chimes in first and he says, guys, you know, this, the beautiful plaid-like pattern of this creature is just, awesome. and it's skinny legs. It's definitely a unique part of Mother Earth, and perhaps we should burn incense to it or worship it or something. And the atheist is like, I don't know about that. I will say that, uh, with all of its unusual amount of hair, particularly on its face, and it's man-like frame. It's it's probably evidence that men have come from apes, that we're related to apes. That's what I think. And the Calvary pastor turned and said, no, no, guys, that's Sam. Uh, he's my worship leader. He likes to pretend he's from Portland. Um, so I can make fun of worship leaders because I am one. But it's true. You go to a worship conference and, like, you think you're the cool one at your church and then you go to a worship conference and everybody's dressed exactly the same. Really. Nice nice plaid there. Yeah. Is that Target or H&M? Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you got three different people, three different worldviews, um, uh, coming from having three different observations here. And it's been said that in all the world, there really are only three types of people. In fact, an old Southern Baptist pastor put it this way. He says, there's three kinds of people in the world. Them's who is, them who ain't, and them who thinks they is, but ain't, you know what I'm saying? And so today we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to see them who is, them who ain't. And them the posers, them who things is, but ain't. the title of today's message are Haters, Lovers and Posers. Haters, Lovers, and Posers. So if you guys would turn there, Matthew twenty six. All right. Let's pray for our study. Father, we are here once again just to hear from you, Lord God, we are tremendously privileged to have the the entire Word of God preserved for us, sitting in our laps as an available resource. We look we look to it this morning as the authority for truth. We look to it, Lord God, as uh, being sufficient, Lord God, giving us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And so as we do approach the scriptures, we do so with reverence, Lord, uh, knowing that uh, this is supernatural, like this is your inerrant word, and you have intended us uh, to look to it this morning specifically. So Uh, May you give us your Holy Spirit generously be our teacher as we as we look through your word in Jesus name. Amen. Now, it came to pass, verse one, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know, that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the place of the high priest who was called Caiaphas the palace i'm sorry and plotted to take jesus by trickery and kill him but they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people and when jesus was in bethany at the house of simon the leper a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil she poured it on his head as he sat at the table but when his disciples saw it, they were indignant saying why this waste For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor always with you, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Amen. So first on scene, verse three, we got some haters showing up here. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people gathering together at Caiaphas's palace, right? Because this dude was loaded. He had lots of money and he gained that money in uh, wicked ways, extortion and, and taking advantage of the people. Uh, so here they are hanging out, having this party. And these are the people who are have convinced their culture that they are the ones who are godly that they're they're the model for godliness. And yet in this setting they're I mean, all pretense aside, um, they have one agenda and they all know it. Hey, we're not here to be righteous men. We're here to figure out how we can manipulate and trick Jesus so that we can kill him so that we can take his life. Uh, no good intentions here found in this room. Um, so what's going on? The haters. The thing about haters, guys, is they reject the truth. They come face to face with the truth. They came face to face with Jesus. They saw the miracles, the signs and wonders he performed, validating his truthfulness, that he was truth, that he was Messiah. And they rejected it and they, they resisted it. But, you know, the thing about truth is you cannot overcome truth. Truth will always prevail. You can kill Jesus, but you can't keep him in the grave. Jesus prevails, and so does truth. I was explaining this to, to our junior hires uh, at my daughter's school, and I was saying, for instance, two plus two is four. That's a, that's a fact. You cannot argue with that. And one junior hire uh, shouted out, no, two plus two is 22. And all the kids laughed and everything. And I said, that's an awesome example of how you can manipulate truth. You can take a lie and make it seem logical. And some people can buy into it and believe if they don't know any better. But it's only a matter of time before that's proven to be false. And you're going to realize, why two plus two is four. In fact, give that kind of mathematics to Wall Street and watch it collapse in, in moments, right? We need absolute truth like two plus two is four. The truth will prevail and it will be revealed to be true. But why are they so angry? Why are they so volatile, so violent toward Jesus and his followers, these haters, I believe the answer is found in Hebrews chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. I'll share it with you. Verse 26, it says this. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. It's a scary verse. What what the author here is saying is that, look, if, if we've been exposed to the truth. The good and the bad that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we've been exposed to the truth of that Savior and we reject it, then the only truth that God allows to linger in your heart and mind is the truth of fiery indignation, of judgment. And it's God's love that allows this to take place. So these haters, they, they go through their entire lives trying to avoid it, drinking it away, uh, trying to shove it away with, with so-called intellect, right? And ignoring it, running from it. But every time it comes up, every time it's, they're reminded of it, man, it hurts. And it, it's not fun. And it makes them angry because the truth is prevailing. And they've done everything in their power to make sure that it doesn't happen. And it's still happening. This makes them angry. Uh, we've run into these people in this, on the streets of Tucson. We got to actually do a street outreach on Friday. I went out there and hung out with the team. It was actually fairly chill, but there was a little bit of hostility there as well. You know, you run into these kind of people and the reason they're upset with you or me and particularly Jesus is because second Corinthians chapter two to those who are perishing, we are the smell of death and doom. We're stinky to them. We bring up topics they have been trying to ignore. So they, These haters, they become hostile. And I want to encourage you guys for a moment here, if you come face to face with these types of people in the community, um, at the university perhaps, you see them on YouTube um, propagating that, that there is no God, know this. Don't be intimidated by them, even though many of them are smart. They're brilliant. They're not stupid people. Um, I really respect a lot of the, the the top atheists, their intellect, they're brilliant men, but they've they've forfeited the foundation of truth. And so you don't need to be intimidated by them and their big words and their theories. Here's why. It is impossible to prove that God does not exist. Do you know that? Do you realize that? I'll say that again. It is impossible to prove that God does not exist. So you have all these people saying all the time they've proven they've science proves God. It cannot. Why? Why can't it prove that? Because to prove God does not exist, you have to have full knowledge, full understanding of all time, of all space and all matter. No one will ever have full knowledge of that. No one, science will never have full knowledge of that. And so you can't, you can't say things like, you know, uh, we we have our telescopes and our um, microscopes and we've looked everywhere and we haven't found any God. We've taken all these fancy pictures with our Hubble telescope and haven't taken a snapshot of God yet. So he's not up there. He, you know, surely by now he would probably grab the Hubble and take a few selfies in front of the Milky Way, you know, but he hasn't. So he must not exist. Right. And that's just silly. There's more logic, guys, in believing and following the evidence for a designer than there is logic, boiling it down to say nothing created everything. That's illogical. That's unscientific to say everything came from nothing, which is what it boils down to eventually if you go that route and you throw out God. So don't be intimidated. A few things about these guys that we need to glean from. Number one, don't be a hater, right? Don't resist truth just because it's uncomfortable in your life. Don't resist it. Allow that truth to have its work in you. Um, and I'll, I'll, I want to say this right out of the gate. I, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I'm a perfect lover of Christ and that I haven't wrestled with being a hater and even being a poser. I think we have the tendency to, to, to wear different hats, don't we? So let's not let's not uh, pretend here. However, let's not be haters. Let's not resist the truth in our life. Let's let, let it have its work. And number two, let's not return hate for hate. Let's not hate haters. Let's love them. Jesus said, don't repay evil for evil, but good. Right? That is the mark of a Christian. And you want to throw them for a loop? Have them try and get antagonistic, and you still love them. You still defuse the situation. You walk away trying to be their friend. That sticks with them. That's what gets just stuck in their conscience, okay? If they can get you mad and angry to hate them, man, they've won. They've got this Christian to compromise, right? So that's what we can learn from these haters. Uh, let's take a look at the lovers. Verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him. This woman, as we find in John, is actually Mary of Bethany. And she is one of my heroes, or heroines, I guess you'd say, of the faith. Uh, throughout the entire gospel, all four gospels, next to Jesus, she is my favorite character by far. She, I think she is the greatest example of, of, of being a Christ follower pre-Pentecost, before everybody else received the Spirit. It seemed like Mary had it together with her walk with Christ. And so we're going to glean from her today. Um, notice it says this woman came to her, or came to Jesus. And as lovers, we need to look for opportunities to be with Jesus. Just like Mary did. She she was in this setting and she made sure to be with Jesus, to be next to Jesus, to be near to him. Notice this isn't a corporate gathering, is it? This isn't a church service. This is not even like a church potluck or community gathering. This is an intimate evening in someone's living room with close friends. And Mary made certain that she was there, that she was a part of that intimate gathering. So as we do follow this example, guys, let's not merely seek Jesus on Sunday mornings. You guys know and live in a culture where many only seek Jesus Sunday morning. They, they live however they want to live, and then they come around. I mean, it's rampant. You guys live in the Bible Belt. Uh, West Coast, even. Tucson, Arizona. It's, it's the same deal. Europe. I've been. To, we go to Europe. We do missions in Europe. It's the same deal. So many people are pretending and just seeking Jesus one day a week, if you could call it that. Let's not be that, guys. Let's not set that example for our children. Amen. Let's let's seek Jesus. The special intimate times, uh, be it a a worship night at a friend's house, a a special concert and outreach. Definitely in your own home uh, as an individual. Let's seek Jesus intimately. Verse seven. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil. Uh, In John, we learn that this is 300 denarii, or like one year's salary for somebody. So today's equivalent, what, thirty-five, forty thousand, 40,000, perhaps? That's an expensive jar of perfume there. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. She just poured it out without even a thought, without even batting an eye. You see, lovers, lovers of Jesus seek to give Jesus their most valuable possessions. Why? Not because they're trying to earn Jesus's approval, not because they're trying to um, look good in Jesus's eyes, uh, but they do it because they va- they genuinely value Jesus above everything else that they have. And when you value Jesus above everything else, then everything else falls into its place. It falls into subjection to the Lord, the King of Kings, and it finds its rightful place, its healthy place in your life. And this was likely this perfume was likely being saved for her wedding day. Um, something perhaps her father saved up for years to buy for her dowry and now uh, given to her as a gift to bless her wedding night. That she would come and become one flesh with her husband to bless her husband, to sanctify that time and that night. So she in pouring this out is effectively saying, Jesus, you're more important to me than any earthly relationship. You're more important to me than a future spouse. You're more valuable to me than my future itself. You know, think about the financial security she was pouring out by giving this to Jesus. You're more important to me than the security financially, Jesus. I value you above all else. And the reality is, guys, if we want God to bless our marriages now, or the marriages yet to be, or the future, our aspirations, our hopes, our finances, they need to find their rightful place in subjection to Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus must be valued above these things for them to be blessed by Jesus. Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, She has done a good work for me. She's done a good work for me. Isn't that amazing? See, lovers seek work that blesses God. They know what it looks like. They've learned it and they make sure that they do it because it fills them up. It refreshes them. But what amazes me and something I try to remind myself of regularly as I as I lead worship is that one tiny little speck, one infinitesimal speck in all of the universe, such as me, such as you, one little tiny blip on, on the timeline of history, which is our life, can actually have such an impact on the heart of the creator of the universe That God knows you personally, intimately. He's watching you. He's looking at your heart. And whenever you honor him and worship him, it fills him with joy. It blesses him. We're talking about the creator of the universe. And we have that kind of influence on him. He has allowed that to happen. Isn't that amazing? He's invited us into this process of worship. And Jesus is saying here, hey, this woman is blessing me. She did a work and I'm blessed by it. Verse 11, for you have the poor with you always, Jesus says. Oh, but me, you do not always have. Makes an interesting point here. You will always have uh, people less fortunate than you around you so that you can be generous. There, that will always be an opportunity for that. But however, you will not always have me around you. There's a special and unique opportunity here, Jesus is saying, and Mary has recognized it. See, she understood her time with Jesus physically on earth was coming to an end. And it was limited. So what she did was she capitalized on this opportunity. She struck while the iron was hot. And she invested in this moment. And she invested greatly, didn't she? And now, as she's seeing the eternal consequences of it, the eternal rewards from it, it's probably more blessing than she ever could imagine. Do you guys realize that? Your worship, it yields fruit in heaven. More blessing in heaven than you could ever imagine. So don't be discouraged in your in your acts of worship feeling like it's too much to give to Jesus. But we have also been given special opportunity to worship God and perhaps opportunity that is greater than Mary. Do you realize this? Why? Mary, she worshipped a Savior she could see, didn't she? We worship a Savior we don't see. We have the opportunity to worship in faith. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Hebrews says that in, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have a greater opportunity to exhibit faith than perhaps even the disciples and Mary had. So we need to strike while the iron's hot. The timing is significant. Mary's perfume would be of no value to her in heaven, would be of no value to her in the grave, but at the time she gave it, boy, it was of tremendous value to her, wasn't it? See, today we have things that we could otherwise be selfish with, resources and time and money and and families, um, that we can take and honor Jesus with. And do just like Mary, we can break these flasks and pour these things out, honoring the Lord Jesus with them. And realizing that there will come a day where it will be too late to honor God with an engagement season. It will be too late to honor God with a family Your kids will grow up and your influence in their lives will run out and run short. It'll be too late to honor God in your career, with your giftings, with your health, with your finances. There will come a time where it will be too late. And God forbid we be the individuals who look back on our lives and regret not having given more. Getting to heaven, regretting the fact that we squandered so much that we were entrusted with. To whom much is given, much is required. So let's take advantage, follow Mary's example, take advantage of this time, strike while the iron's is hot, give of the resources, give of the time that we have. Verse 12, in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. What an interesting insight. See, Jesus knows her heart, knows her mind. Jesus can say something like that. I know exactly why she did this. You see, the interesting thing is Mary seemed to be the only one listening in verse 2. Right. He flat out said, hey, I'm going to be crucified, guys. And he did numerous times tell them I'll I'll rise from the dead as well. But Mary, for some reason, she's the only one who's grasped this. And it's because lovers are close to Jesus. They have this intimate relationship that causes them to know more than the rest. And it was likely the time she spent at Jesus's feet. You guys remember the story of Martha and Mary? Martha slaving in the kitchen, working, working, working getting frustrated because Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just hanging out, taking the night off. And she's like, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to get up and help me? I'm slaving in the kitchen here. And Martha and Jesus is like, look, Mary has chosen that which is greater and it will not be taken from her. And it was likely those intimate times one on one with Jesus that she came to understand, whoa, you mean you really are going to be crucified and then rise from the dead? Wow, she understood it because she, she took the time to spend communicating with Jesus and understanding what he came to do. And because she understood this, because she understood that Jesus was about to, to be killed, she offered worship that was fitting. It was a specific act of worship and it was completely and entirely appropriate and fitting, but it, it didn't it wasn't perceived that way. See, to everyone else who didn't see the bigger picture, what Mary did was irrational. It was uh, inappropriate. It was awkward. Like, what? Uh, what a waste. What? That's weird. Why is she rubbing Jesus with her hair? You know, why? Why did you pour out the oil on his on him like that? That's just it was weird. Right. We might have even thought the same if we were standing in that room. Um, however. So Jesus and to Mary, those who knew what was going to take place, that was completely fitting and completely appropriate. So as lovers of Christ, being close to him, we know what's fitting. We know how to worship him in ways that are appropriate. Verse 13, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. He prophesies now that this woman is going to be remembered throughout all of history And we're seeing this prophecy fulfilled today, aren't we? Sitting here reading this. Jesus honors lovers. He honors those who love him. He makes sure and certain that they are remembered forever in eternity. And the picture here, Mary, what she did was very significant, but it was really just a short time, wasn't it? Just a moment in time. By this simple act of worship, she throws a proverbial boulder into the ocean of history. With this act of worship, sending tidal waves to generations, tidal waves of waves of example of how we should worship. Do you realize when you do that, when you worship, that's what's taking place as well? You're throwing in your stones into history and you're saying, I represent Christ. I worship Christ. I honor Christ. You're impacting generations. You're impacting your posterity. The worship that you give is echoing in the vaults of heaven. It impacts. It has. It has impact. So don't be discouraged. Don't listen to the posers who show up on scene and say things like this. Let's just check out the posers. Verse eight, when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Why, Why would you waste this, Mary? See, posers, if you notice here, they're just merely spectators, aren't they? They're just chilling, kind of watching, hanging out, probably eating some food and De- definitely there for themselves. I can speak as having been a poser. Uh, one motive for me was it not really knowing. So you know you kind of come around Christians, and you wouldn't want them to think you're not Christian, but you're still kind of feeling it out. So that's that's a stage of, of posing that I guess is somewhat understandable. You're, you're you're in transition, right? But then there's also the motive of posing where it's simply because you don't want to value Jesus above yourself. You don't want to value Jesus above the things that you have. And it seems to be the case. We know that's the case for Judas, right? We, we find out in John that uh, he really, he was a treasury and he actually would have loved to sell the perfume and steal the money for himself. Um, but the disciples tragically follow the example of the biggest poser in the, in the group and they all start acting like posers. Why are you wasting all this? And because they don't value Jesus, it doesn't come naturally to them. So they're left spectating. They're left spectating in times of worship because they don't it's weird it's awkward for them they don't get it because they haven't they haven't placed Jesus on the throne of their hearts. The result here in this text is they became critical they became bitter toward Mary and about what she gave to Jesus, calling it waste so a couple of things we need to understand from posers is that number one if if you've ever i don't know if you've ever given something or made a sacrifice for the Lord um, done something that seemed illogical for the lord uh um and, and maybe you were criticized for it, um, I, and maybe even from Christians. I know I have a friend who who quit his his job to, um, to to pour into a particular ministry and to trust in tithes to support his ministry. And his in-laws and his own parents, who were both Christians, kind of kind of gave him some grief for it. You know how you, you're going to. Um, compromise your family and your position and your security and everything and god took care of them because god called them to it He called them to step out don't let don't let people discourage you in any way from giving What you have to give it's it's not anyone else's to give but yours I'll say that again anything that you're called to give Even if it seems illogical It's yours to give it's not somebody else's to give And if god has called you to give that you cannot be blinded by the criticism of posers or convinced that you shouldn't do it just because it seems illogical from the perspective of someone who doesn't, who doesn't quite understand the scenario. Secondly, worship is never a waste. Don't let anyone ever convince you that anything you've done in the name of Jesus, that anything that you get to do for Jesus is actually a waste, because it's not. As we've talked about, it impacts the heart of God. It impacts eternity. Verse 9, For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor, they said. See, posers accuse true worshipers to make them look bad and to make themselves look better in the eyes of Jesus. Um, so maybe it's, the, it's jealousy, perhaps. Like, I need to look better. I need to look more spiritual than this person because I'm, I seem to be missing out here. But they end up saying things that seem to be spiritual. Man, we could have, we could have done so much for the for the homeless ministry here in this town. And Jesus is like what you know I, I i'm reading right through you're just covering up your selfish motives with some spiritual lingo that's what posers do and what what they end up doing is is they drink from the well of worship as we come to worship it's like a, it's like a well and it's not a well that we need to draw from worship is a well that we pour into do you guys realize that as we come together sunday mornings this isn't for you to drink from get entertainment or gain, uh, you know, attention from other people or any, we don't, we're not to drink from this. Well, it's not ours to drink. It's God's we pour out into this well. And so whenever you're caught drinking from it, it's, it's an act of opposer. You're, you're pretending to, to be a part, but you're really there for selfish reasons for selfish motives. Um, but I love, I love what, uh, um, John Piper said about this. He said that the two greatest passions in all the universe, the two greatest desires are, one, man's desire to be satisfied and two, God's desire to be glorified. Those are the two greatest passions. And he said they do not need to be contrary to one another. They often are, aren't are they? Sometimes we'll, we'll set aside God's glory in order to satisfy ourselves. That happens quite a bit. But he says they don't need to be contrary to one another. In fact, they can come together in perfect fulfillment In the act of worship, as we pour ourselves out, God satisfies us. And he says this. I love this because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in your life when you are most satisfied in him. I love that. Verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Why do you trouble her? What, what, what's happening here? Jesus is sticking up for the lover. See, Jesus, Jesus comes against posers. Jesus rebukes posers. Jesus rebukes the haters. But guess what? He's on the side of the lovers. And this is the thought I want to close with. The, because there's coming a day, guys, when, when we will stand before the Lord and he personally will appoint us our eternal destination. And he, he actually told a parable about posers. Jesus did. It was a great teaching. He said, it's a scary one. He said that there will come a day where, where, where people will actually stand before me and they'll say, oh, Lord, Lord, you know, we did all these cool things in your name and did all these wonderful things that both posers and lovers can do together. And he'll say to them, away from me, for I never knew you. That they actually spend their whole time Their whole Christian life, posing, never actually honoring Jesus and valuing him. And then one day it's too late. And now they're standing in front of Jesus trying to convince Jesus that they were close to Jesus. And Jesus is like, I never really knew you. You ever try to be friends with somebody who you really aren't that close with, you haven't really developed that relationship with? It's kind of awkward if anybody's ever done that to you. He says, there's coming a day when that's going to happen to people. And they'll say, depart from me. To me, that's probably the most terrifying verse in all of scripture. The fact that I could be in ministry, I could even be in ministry for decades and have convinced myself that I know Jesus, but I've been posing the whole time. There's a risk for that. There's a risk for me, there's a risk for you. So we have to examine ourselves to see as to whether we're in the faith. So let's make certain, guys, that we are not of that class. Let's make certain that we are those Honor Jesus with all that we have, valuing Him above everything else. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray.